0: Hey you guys, what's happening, Pastor Caleb here. Welcome back to My Church Online. Um, so glad that you're here if you're here for the first time. Uh, we hope you come back for a second time, stick around for a lifetime. Uh, the reality is that we have been at church for about 10 years now and we are coming up on our 10 year celebration just weeks from now. Wanna encourage you to come along for that. It's gonna be an incredible, incredible Sunday across our house. So mark the date, send the link to everybody you know. I promise you it's gonna be awesome. We are smack dab in the middle of a series of talks on the grace of God. And obviously, when we speak about the grace of God, uh, I'm not talking about a message, a doctrine, or a teaching. I'm really talking about the person of Jesus. John 1.17 says, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. The reality is, is when you talk about grace, you're really talking about Jesus. And the grace of God is the gospel. It's called the gospel of God's grace. And so today, I would love to further unpack that revelation of God's good news, the good news of God's grace to you. I'm hoping it'll bless somebody who's tuning in and teaming up with us. The reality is, is that we have actually discussed a couple things so far in our series of talks. Number one, how to get right with God. There's two ways you can go about doing it. You can either think that you have to go through life trying to achieve a a place of right standing with God by what you do, living morally, righteously, so you live acceptably before God. You know, my good works outweigh my bad works. So again, works, by what you do. You have to achieve that place of right standing by what you do, living right and avoiding bad, you know? Achieve it or you can simply receive it on account of Christ. The Bible declares Romans 5:17 that God his righteousness is gifted to us on account of what Christ has done. This is actually why Jesus came and said it is Finished on the cross. He finished the work of God and He now provided to us His righteousness on account of what He did. And therefore, two ways you can come about getting in a relationship with God by what you do or what Christ has done. Hey, which one sounds easier? Which one sounds better to you? Come on, somebody. Now, second thing I'd ask you, and that we've discussed, is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. I know that many of you, like me, you've probably thought and believed across your life that, man, the Ten Commandments show us how to live righteously and how to avoid sin and how to live morally and holy before God, to live an acceptable life before God. And, and, or maybe even how to buffer our, our sinful passions and stuff like that. And so the law, the Ten Commandments, were God's way of showing us how to get right with him. And the reality is, is that while that's a measure of truth to that, um, last week we discussed that in great length. And so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. But the reality is, is that no, we've been set free from the law. That if, if you held to any one of those beliefs, um, the reality is, is that that is not the purpose in which the law was given for. Actually, the Bible says it very emphatically. The law was given um, to unbelievers, okay, the unrighteous, those who are not right with God by faith. It is a pre-faith thing. It's not actually for people of faith who now are believers in Jesus. Um, it's for unbelievers to convict them of their sin through the law it shows you that you're, you're a sinful. And once you realize that you're sinful and you can't measure up to the, the standard of the law, what it's gonna do then is bring you under the judgment, hold you accountable to God and bring you under judgment, Romans 3, verses 20 to 22. Um, it's gonna bring you a, a judgment of God. And when you realize you're under the judgment of God and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6:23, you're going to find yourself going, "Oh shoot, what am I going to do now? Who's going to save me?" And that's where you look to put your faith in Jesus, who can save you. So the law is designed to bring, show forth sinfulness in humanity, point out your sin, uh, and, and actually increase in your sin in your life, so that you'll realize, "Oh shoot, I cannot save myself." Bring you under the judgment of God. Then, when the judgment of God falls. The law served its full purpose because it's designed to try to bring you to the end of your own works, your own abilities, your own efforts to try to save yourself so that you realize you can't save yourself and put your faith in Jesus. That is why the law was given. And so today, I want to talk about moving forward as a believer now without the law, but... I want to work through some of the things that many of you are probably thinking in your head. There's probably many people tuned in and teamed up here today who heard the last talks and had still questions and things running through their head, like, but what about, and what about? Like some of the things I just mentioned. I thought the law though, man, wasn't, are you sure? It wasn't this thing to show us how to live righteously and to live acceptably before God. I mean, maybe that's even why it's even a level of frightening for you. It's very like, ooh, to let go of the law, that seems scandalous. I mean, I've I, I always grown up being taught That you need those things. I mean, it was taught everywhere I went. It was taught in church everywhere. And I I was constantly beat up on account of that law, you know? Maybe that's why you left the church. I mean, who knows? Uh, But the reality is, is that, friend, I want you to know here at my church, we are for the Ten Commandments. I'm all for the law, but for the purpose in which God gave the law. And the law was not designed for you as a Christian. I know that could be incredibly shocking and confronting, and I don't want you to tune out and turn me off. I really want to invite you on a journey of discussing this scripturally, because here's what I think is important, that we don't just go to the Bible and allow our beliefs to interpret the Bible, but we allow the Bible to truly interpret our beliefs. What does the Bible say? Let's, just, let's go into that, because the reality is you might, like many people, find yourself a little mixed up and confused. There's a lot of things that Jesus says that could seem contradictory. And, and there's things in the Bible that think, but what about, what? About, that doesn't make any sense. And I think there's a lot of confusion that comes because we've mixed the two covenants, the old covenant of God's law and the, and the Old Testament with the new covenant, the New Testament. And we don't understand that when Christ died, there was a divide between the old has gone and now the new has come, like that is old and now we're embracing of the new entirely. But if you thought you still need the old with the new, you're gonna live in a form of Babylon. Did you know that the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they actually spent many a years in captivity in a place called Babylon. And did you know that the word Babylon means confusion by mixture? I wonder if there's anybody out there today who's been living enslaved into sin, And and feeling like defeated and depleted, struggling and really straggling in your faith, confused by mixture, living in a place called, if you would, Babylon. A state of being called Babylon in your life. I don't know if that's, you know something that you might be able to relate to, but I'm praying that today I might be able to shed some clarity on the matter and release you from that confusion, help you com- really distinctly distinguish between the old covenant and the new and what your relationship is to that old and what your relationship is to the new covenant. God's law and God's now grace. Hey, come on somebody. So pray for your friends. Let's pray for somebody. But you know, if you held to the wrong idea of the law, man, the Bible says it emphatically, Romans 6, 14, for you, mean you and I, well, you are not under law. You are under grace. I mean, it seems fair enough, but the reality is it could seem frightening to let go of some of those things because you've got to be convinced of it fully. So allow me the moment to really do that. Now, not wrong assumptions that we've often maintained and held toward the law. We thought the law was designed to buffer sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. The law was given, Romans 5.20, to increase sin. The law uh, was to increase sin. Come on, let that sink in. Or the strength of sin, 1 Corinthians 15 56. The strength of sin is the law. Wait, I thought the, I thought the law brought forth righteousness in my life. No, you empower sin in your life when you live after the law. You increase sin in your life when you live after the law. Isn't that right? Paul himself, he even attested to this. Romans 7, verse 5, he says, man, he basically pleaded, he goes, this law aroused and stirred up sinful desires and passions within me. Romans 7 8, At the, the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. I mean, guys, it's radically clear, but I get it. If you maintain some of the beliefs that I just articulated earlier, this is a confronting notion. Wait, the Bible says that? The Bible says that. It's actually the law is what is responsible for sin because it's doing it in so many ways. It's doing its function in helping you come to the end of yourself so that you are so utterly convinced of the sinfulness of sin within your life that you desperately look for a savior. And at that point, Jesus comes in and goes, hey, so you're tired and worn out, worn out on religion? Come to me. I'll show you my grace. My burden is light. Enter into my rest and put your faith in me. So the wrong assumption is that Sin shows us how to live righteously and it shows us how to avoid sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. The second assumption is that law imparts life. Man, even Paul thought that. He said, the law, I thought, was to bring life, I found to bring death. But if you, like me, like Paul, thought the law was designed to bring forth life and allow us to live after, you wouldn't be the first person to do so, but you are sincerely misled. The law actually imparts death. It is a ministry of death, as a matter of fact. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 says, the law that was written and engraved on stone, I mean, that's emphatically clear. The only laws that were written and engraved on stone with the hand of God himself was the Ten Commandments. Come on, somebody. And Moses broke both tablets. When he came down the mountain, he broke all the Ten Commandments at once. Come on, somebody. Ah! Uh, it's funny. Anyways, but it is declared, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, the law is a ministry of death. Look at it. The law is a ministry of death written and engraved on stone. But if the ministry of death. Hey, the law, we can equally assume that it was a. Gu- it's a guide. It's, yeah, I mean, it shows us. A guide into godly maturity and godly life with God how to live a guides into how to live a righteous and, and moral acceptable life before God and yet again before the way of faith in Christ Galatians 3 23 to 25 look at what it says before the way of faith in Christ was available to us we were placed under guard by the law the law is not a guide the scripturally, the law is a guard who is our guide The Lord himself, the Holy Spirit, is our guide. And we'll get to that in a moment. But look, before the way of faith in Christ came, we were placed under guard by the law. Notice that. Before we came to faith, we were held under custody of the law, guard by the law. See, the law's function and reign is only pre-faith. Before faith came, we were held by the law. But once faith came, we were no longer in the law. the, The purpose of the law is fully now you know, it's brought to completion, it's done its job in bringing us to faith in Christ. So now we're no longer in need of it. And that's what it's about to say. Look, it's before faith came in Christ, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the law or until the way of faith was revealed. We were kept in protective custody until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way, Paul says. The law was our, here it is, guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Did you notice that? The law was our guardian until Christ came. Not after, only until. See, the law had a jurisdiction. It had parameters. It had, you know, an end date. And that was when Christ came. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we would be made right with God through faith. Not works by the law, but faith through Christ, okay? And now that the way of faith has come. It says we no longer need the law as our guardian. I mean, that's pretty airtight. And so is the law our guard? Absolutely not. The law was a tutor uh, or a teacher in the sense that we uh, understand the word. It, It is a guardian who takes us to and points us to the real one, the real teacher, Jesus, okay? So, the Holy Spirit is said to be our guide, however. The Holy Spirit will teach you everything you need to know, John 14, 26, and he will guide you into all truth. If the Spirit of Christ teaches you everything you need to know, then what remains for the law to teach you? Exactly. The Christian is to be guided by the living spirit of Christ, not the dead rule of law. Come on, somebody. Hey, third thing you could assume is that the law was given to grow godly character and grow you into godly maturity. No, Romans 7, 18. Look at Romans 7, 18. Again, if you're like me, you thought, man, I thought I'd grow into more godly maturity by living after the law. More godlike, in other words, right? Um, and yet the law says in Hebrews 7:18, the law brought nothing to maturity. Say it again. The law brought nothing to maturity. And yet here we were thinking that we, by the law, we grow into maturity. No, it brought nothing. It brings nothing to maturity. The only way, there's another way, however, that does. And it, look at what it says. Another way, Jesus, right? He is the one who brings us into maturity. A way that does work, that brings us right into the presence of God is put in its place. Put in what place? The law's place. Jesus is put in the law's place. He, we, Jesus doesn't need the law's help. We don't need a law to lead us. We've got the Lord to lead us. We don't need a system of law to, to guide us. We've got a savior of love to guide us. Even Paul, though, he rebuked uh, you know, a church called the Galatian church who thought he had, they held this belief. That once you've come to faith, okay, right. We obtain right standing. Caleb, okay. We obtain right standing with God by what Christ has done. I receive righteousness. I'm forgiven of my past and my present sins on account of Jesus, not acquitting the righteousness and your forgiveness is also all sins, like future as well. For instance, how many of your sins were future when Christ died? All of them. So you're forgiven, not just your past and your present, but future sins as well. So Anyways, that's another conversation. But the reality is, many people obtain, uh, subscribe to this belief that we, we obtain right standing with God on account of Jesus by faith. But once I've come to declared righteous on account of Christ, now moving forward, I must maintain that righteousness by what I do. I must live right and holy, and i got to live after the law. And so we re subscribe ourselves back to the law. We obtain right standing with Christ, but now we maintain right standing. By what we do, and that is exactly what Paul addresses with the Galatian church. Look what he says. He says, in addressing this very thing, he goes, What? You stupid Galatians, he says. I mean, that was the last time a pastor called you stupid. That's not very nice. I told you exactly how Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. Has someone cast a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? He says, This is all I want to ask of you. Galatians 3, 2 to 3, 2 to 4 in the Amplified. Did you receive the Holy Spirit as a result of obeying the requirements of the law or as a result of hearing the message of salvation? with faith, just simply believing it. In other words, did you receive the Spirit of God in your life who comes on, on the other side of the law, right, by faith or by you living after and keeping the Ten Commandments? He's like, of course it was by faith. Are you so foolish and senseless, he says then, Having begun your new life by faith with the Spirit of God now leading and guiding you, are you now being perfected? In other words, reaching spiritual maturity by the flesh. And what does that mean? That is by your own works and efforts to keep the law. Guys, are you seeing these? He goes, have you suffered so many things and experienced so much? All for nothing, if indeed it was all for nothing. Look at this. Paul is addressing this very notion. You think you need grace, and now you need to be perfected and brought into spiritual maturity by the law? No, he's saying no. And so maybe you thought the law was to show you how to guide you into godly maturity. Nothing could be further from the truth. So how, when are we made mature? Are we mature? I mean, I'm... I'm, you are mature. The moment you've come to Christ, you are mature. Maturity is not attained by living after the law in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite of true. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 on. For you, you Hebrews, you ought to be teachers by now. But instead, you need to be taught from the beginning the basics of God's prophetic oracles, or the ABCs of the gospel, basically. You're like children, still needing milk and not ready to digest solid food. For every spiritual Infant who lives on milk is inexperienced with the revelation of righteousness or the message of God's righteousness. Whoever is infant, in other words, immature, okay, is they are unversed in the language manifestation of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. Now, who is the mature? Go to chapter six. Okay, those who are first five actually who have been those who have been trained by what they've experienced to emerge with understanding of the difference between what is truly excellent and what is evil and harmful. Now, is the time for us to progress beyond basic message of Christ? It's time for us, guys, to move beyond the basic message of Christ and advance into perfection. The foundation has already been laid for us to build upon, turning away from our dead works to embrace faith in God. Turning away from dead works to embrace faith in God. What is, according to the scripture, the true context, what is spiritual infancy? It's people who don't understand how they're made right with God. they're they're, They're inexperienced in the word of God's righteousness. What is the message of righteousness? That we are made right with God on account of faith, not dead works, is what he's saying. And what is a dead work? It's a kind of work or effort or self-effort that we commit to doing in order to get right with God. It's a work of the law. It's a works-based righteousness. And it's a dead work because it's a futile effort. It's completely useless. You cannot save yourself. So it's compared to, it's called a dead work, contrasted to the scripture in New Testament, to a good work. And what is a good work? A good work is something we do not to get right with God, but because we are right with God. It's a, it's a work which we commit to doing in response to the goodness of God at work in our lives. So for instance, when Jesus says, let your good works be seen before men so that they may glorify, see it and give glory to God and your father in heaven. A good work is not so God sees it and accepts you. A good work is because God already saw you, accepted you, and you do a good work to let men see it so that they put their faith and give glory to God. They put their faith in and give glory to God. You see what I'm saying? A good work compared to a dead work. A dead work is the kind of work that we do to get right with God. A good work is something we do on account of the fact that we already made right with God and that... We are then mature according to these scriptures. We're declared mature when we understand the word of his righteousness. When we've come to Jesus and understand he puts us right with himself by faith. So, friend, you are spiritually mature. Maturity is a matter of coming to Christ, not coming again to the law. So why can't we mix law and grace? Let's take a few minutes and break this down. Why can't you mix law and grace? Can we just rapid fire with this? This is why you can't mix the old covenant of law with the new covenant of God's grace. I've been saying grace on this side. The old covenant of law with the new covenant of God's grace. This is why you cannot mix them. Number one, the law arouses sin, and the strength of sin is the law. I want to say it again. The law, it actually arouses sin. And the strength of sin Is the law. Question, why would God want to reintroduce you to a system in your life as a believer that is responsible for stirring up sin in your life? God wants you free from sin, right? And yet, why would God want to stir up sin, arouse sin, and every manner of evil desire, according to Paul, that is aroused by the commandment and the law itself, in the life of a believer? Why would God want to stir up sin in your life? See, That's a a confused message. It's confusion by mixture. Whoa, what the heck? I didn't know. Because what relationship does sin have with righteousness? That's grace, righteousness, law, sin. No relationship there. The wrong assumption that we often make, the reason that we often think we can mix law with grace is because we believe that the law shows us how to live righteously and how to avoid sin. But like we've established, the law is responsible for sin. Through the law, Paul said, Romans 7, 5, actually awakened sinful desires within us. The law awakened sinful desires within us. Romans 7 8, the, the sin seized opportunity provided by the commandment. Sin took advantage of the law and produced in me all kinds of sinful desires. Now watch this. Sins apart from the law, since apart from the law, sin is actually dead. When you get rid of the law, sin dies. That's a key to holiness right there. Come on, somebody. That's a holiness revival key right there. So, you can't mix law and grace because sin arouses sin and the strength of sin is law and Christ died to set you free from sin. He doesn't want to bring it back into your life. Funny though, that when someone fails and falls in some churches today, there can often be this criticism that you know clearly they're preaching too much grace over there. People don't have to, they're not convicted of their sin enough. And so they say that there's too much liberality in that camp. But it's funny that no one says it's because of legalistic preaching, which scripturally is actually the sound answer to sin. Let's put it out there. Number two, you cannot mix along grace because we're to live by faith. We're to live by faith, right? Romans one, I believe sixteen and seventeen says, you know, the gospel of, uh, of God was revealed, and in it, the, the the righteousness of God is revealed, and it declares to us that the just, those who are declared right with God, shall live by faith. We're to live by faith, but here's the problem: the law is not of faith; it's of works. Think about it. Law, what is the tenor of it? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt... Who is the emphasis on in the law, the Ten Commandments? You, you shall. You, you, you. But who's the emphasis on in grace? Christ. See, the law says, man must work. Grace says, God went to work on your behalf. The law says, behave, behave, behave. Christ says, uh, grace says, believe, believe, believe. What do I mean? For God so loved the world that whoever should... Believe in the one who, uh, in in, in, should, uh, in Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. Believe, for God so loved the one whoever uh, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever should believe. leave. The, the The tenor of the New Testament is to believe. It's a matter of faith, not of works. These two things are polar opposite. Faith produces rest. That's why Hebrews four tells us to enter into the rest of God to cease from works. But how can you mix both law and grace? One says rest, one says work. Have you ever tried to tell someone, I want you to sit down and rest and work? You'd be like, it's just not possible. These are polar opposites. And that is my point. We are to live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Look at Galatians 3.12. The law is not of faith. Galatians 3.12 in the Passion Translation says, but keeping the law does not require faith. It requires self-effort. To do the works of the law requires what? you to work, your self-effort. So the reality is, is that if we're to live by faith, you can't do so by the law because the law is not of faith. Look what the Romans 4 says, that God declared to Abraham he was righteous before him. Why? Because Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift. In other words, when you work at something and you get paid for it, that's a wage. It's not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous according to the, this, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Come on, somebody. If getting right with God, Romans eleven six, 6, if it was, if the grace of God, getting right with God, if it is a grace, God's unmerited in favor, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace, well, it's really no longer grace, is it? It would not be a gift. It would be a wage or a reward for your works. Now, I want to point this out, that the law is not of faith, and therefore we cannot mix living a life of faith with that which is not of faith. Makes a pretty clear statement to me, because one is works and one is faith in rest. Now, many of us might want to perform the works of God and say, yeah, but... I I just want to do the works of God. And, you know, the truth is, like me, you might have sinuated like the works of God is to live a moral, holy life. And so, and how would you know what moral and holiness is apart from the law of God? So you look at the law of God as a standard in which to draw that holiness and that moral standard. And yet, you know, look how Christ defines, however, the work of God in the New Testament. The only work we need to do is not behave according to many people's belief, but it's actually to believe. The law says behave, but grace says believe. Again, look at John six twenty eight In New Living Translation, the Passion Translation, whatever translation you want, it all says the same thing pretty much. They replied, so what should we do if we want to do God's work? They asked Jesus. So Jesus answered, the work you can do for God starts with believing in the one he has sent. The work that you can do for God is to believe. You look at the New Living Translation, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus said to them, this is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. What is the only work according to the scripture that God wants from you? But to believe in the one whom God has sent. And your greatest f- demonstration of that belief is your ability to rest and to cease from self-effort and works and truly demonstrate that you trust God and believe God like Abraham believed God that you are righteous on account of what he has done on your behalf. The moment you start to work, you're just showing your lack of faith in him. Come on, somebody. It didn't say Abraham believed in God, by the way. It says Abraham believed God. And what did he believe in that? That he was righteous and was counted righteous on account of that faith that he demonstrated. Now, you might hold a wrong assumption, though, and think, but, Kelby, you gotta understand, this is the struggle. I, I wanna please God by doing the works of God. And, and so, I want to please God by doing the works of the law because, I mean, maybe you believe that doing the works of the law is is something that pleases God. Now, I want you to understand this. If Galatians 3.12 is true that the the law is not of faith, well, then this is a massive problem. Follow me. Hebrews 11.6 says, it is impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. So therefore, if the law, however, then is not of faith, you can't live after the law and please God. And yet here we were thinking that we need to live after the law to live a pleasing life and to please God. Wow. Yet the exact opposite is true. Come on, somebody. Maybe that is hitting you right between the eyes today. And you're like, oh, what the heck? That's messed up. See, when, how do you please God? By not doing works. cease. No. Embrace grace. Trust Jesus And allow the Spirit of God, when you truly do that, you please God. And here's the thing. What you may not realize is that in your your attempt to please God by living after the law, what you may not realize is that you've actually placed yourself under a curse. Now, I know that might be completely surprising to you. That might, be, that might sit incredibly, in a very shocking way with you right now. Because you have maintained this belief that to please God, you have to live right. And by living right, it's after the Ten Commandments. And yet, we're not called to be obedient to the law anymore. We're called to be obedient to the faith. Romans 1, Romans 16, put it up on the screen right now. Look at that. It says we are called to the obedience of faith. We're no longer obedient to the law. We're obedient to faith. And when we are obedient to faith, man, we live with the law fulfilled within us. and We live a holy, righteous life, empowered by God who both works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so here's the problem. Many of you may not realize, but you sought to please God by living after the law, not realizing that in doing so, you put yourself under a curse. Look what the Bible says, Galatians 3.10. Anyone who tries to please God by obeying the law Doing the works of the law is under a curse. Notice what it said. I want to draw your attention to what it actually said. Those of you who are trying to please God by doing the works of the law. Look at the New King James Version. Those of you who are of the works of the law are under a curse. Notice it didn't say that those of you who break the law are under a curse. That's what we often think. That's what we read when we read that. That's not what it said. It's not those who disobey or break the law who are under a curse, it's those who even try to observe the law and do the works of the law, place themselves under a curse. And yet here we were thinking we were trying to please God by doing so, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. But good news, verse 13 says, but Christ rescued us from the law's curse. Come on, somebody, give God some praise. You are blessed on account of faith Or you are blessed on account of the seed of Abraham, which is by faith, according to Galatians 3, 8 and 9. And so look at this. If you're blessed and declared blessed, why would God curse those he has blessed? What a confused thought. That's a mixed message. And maybe you're mixed up because, again, confusion by mixture. Friend, nah, we do not mix law and grace. Third thing, Paul commands us to stand firm in our liberty from the law. Galatians 5, 1. Christ has set you free from the law. This means we are really free. Now hold on to your freedom and don't ever become slaves to the law again. You know what, the Galatian church, if we're to mix law and grace, then answer me this. Why did Paul call them stupid for mixing law and grace? Thinking that I obtain right I by Christ but must maintain it by what I do. That's mixing law and grace. It's a classic version and confusion of mixture he called them stupid for doing so and moves on and say stand and like it's like a William Wallace moment freedom like for freedom christ has set us free you know so do not be entangled with the yoke of bondage again according to the new king james version you know the reality is is that paul commands us to stand firm from our freedom from the law so why would he command us to stand firm in in, in our freedom from it if we're to embrace it you know galatians 4 is a chapter all about you know paul using the old testament father abraham with with many sons, you know, but Abraham had Sarah and Hagar. Sarah was his actual wife, whose name Sarah means grace of God. Okay. And Hagar, uh, who was a representative of the law, he was Sarah's is their maid servant of the house. Now, Sarah was barren, many of you would know, and God came to Sarah and Abraham and told them they would have a promised son in due time. Well, when it didn't come on their timeline, Sarah got impatient and basically told Abraham to go sleep with his maidservant Hagar to give her a child. Well, he did, they were successful, and they gave birth to a son named Ishmael. And these two women with their two sons, because eventually, well, after Ishmael was growing up and was a boy growing strong, Sarah actually got pregnant by by the promise of God came true, gave birth to a son named Isaac. And you know, the story, basically Ishmael persecuted and bullied Isaac. And basically it came to a point where Sarah said that that woman and her son need to go and they kicked them out of the house. Look what Paul says about this story of Abraham. These two women and their sons express an allegory and become symbols of the two covenants. The first covenant was born on Mount Sinai. What was given at Mount Sinai? The law right? So the first covenant was born at Mount Sinai, birthing children into slavery. What does the law give birth to? Bondage, slavery. Now, why would God want to make you a slave if you're under grace and free, but a slave at the same? That doesn't make any sense. But the first covenant was born on Mount Sinai, birthing slavery, children born to Hagar. For Hagar represents the law given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. The Hagar, The Hagar metaphor corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem of today who who is currently in bondage. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem above, which is our true mother. This is Sarah, in other words. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. Now look at this. Galatians 4, 30 to 31 in the J.B. Phillips New Testament. Now we, my brothers, are like Isaac, the promised son. That's us, okay? We are children born by promise, by faith. But just as in those far off days, the natural son persecuted the spiritual son, so it is today. Yet, what is scriptural? What is the scriptural instruction? What were they to do with Hagar and her son? But she, Abraham was told, cast out the bondwoman and her son, cast out the law and the fruit of the law. For the son of the bondwoman, the law shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman. Grace, law is not to be heir. And to be raised with grace. So then, my brothers, we are not to look upon ourselves as the son of the slave woman, but of the free. Not sons of slavery under the law, but sons of freedom under grace. Notice what he's saying. He's using an Old Testament scripture to prove to them, Guys, this is the same gospel was preached to them as to us. And Abraham was told, once the promised son came, you cast out the, the, the bondwoman. Once you come to faith in Christ, the promise, you cast out the law. And notice Hagar, she was a maidservant to Sarah, Grace. Law is a servant, a subordinate to Grace. And this is why Paul then builds this whole argument saying, listen, you don't mix these two things. You idiots, you stupid Galatians. And he's using even Old Testament to prove it. And so he goes on into Galatians 5. He goes, therefore, Christ has set us free. This means we are really free. Free from what? Sin? Well, yes, but no. In context, it's the law. Now hold on to your freedom and don't ever become slaves of the law again. Come on, somebody. That's clear. Don't ever become slaves to the law again. Galatians 5, one of the New Living Translation. Now make sure that you stay free. I mean, this is William Wallace's freedom. Like, don't you stay free. And how do you not stay free? By mixing law and again, you become a slave to sin. So make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery to the law. Hey, you can't mix law and grace because we're literally instructed and commanded to stand firm in our liberty from that very law. Number five, the law condemns. The law condemns, yet... We're told in, in the Gospels that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at the law condemns. 2 Corinthians 3.9. It says, for if the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of condemnation. Paul even says the law condemned him. It condemned me. Right? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory. It is a ministry of condemnation. But look at this. Romans 8.1 says, for those that have put their faith in Jesus, there is therefore now present tense, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, why would Jesus, why would God continue to condemn the very people he said there would be no more condemnation for in Christ? The law, it ministers condemnation. It's a ministry of condemnation. So it just condemns. That's what it does. We are not to mix law and grace because the law condemns, yet we are free from condemnation. Again, if you think you are to live with law and grace, you are confused by mixing. Number six, you can't mix law and grace because the new covenant, well, just, it's not according to the old. Look at this, Hebrews 8, 9. 8, 7. Look at read Romans, Hebrews 8, 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, now we know that it wasn't, but recognize it wasn't the fault of the law itself. The law is holy, it is righteous, it is good. We are not antinomians here at my church. We are for the law. Antinomian, antinomos, the word law in the original Greek, anti-law, right? We're not anti-law people here at my church. We are all about it. I believe it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's virtues, it's values are perfect and wow, right? But here's the problem. The law never worked. It was weak and could not do what the son of God can do. That's the problem. It was weak and it was found fault with because the people like you and I, we could never live up to it. We constantly failed. And even our sinful nature took advantage of what was good and used it against us. And so this is, that's Romans 7, 13, if you want a scripture for that. So look what he says. He says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. What did he say? A second covenant to replace the first covenant. It's not an addition. It's not an addendum. It is a complete new administration here, folks. It is a new covenant. Look what he says in Hebrews eight nine. This new covenant. It will be an entirely different covenant than the one I made with their fathers when I led them out of the hand by the hand out of Egypt. It will be an entirely different covenant. Come on, somebody, see it with me now. This is not a covenant that looks even remotely the same or anything like that. No, we've been set free from that. We're not uh, you know, coming back to a, a, you know, a spirit of bondage and fear again. No, we are not. We are set free from the law. We are now embracing this idea of faith and grace and this leading of the Spirit to guide us into all truths, to teach us everything we need now. Come on, this is incredible. So this is what I want to need you to understand. Christ brings us, to the end. When you come to Christ, you come to the end of the law. The law has no more purpose once you come to Christ. Again, it's pre-faith and it's designed to bring you to faith. But once you come to faith, Christ is the end of the law. He is not a blend of the law. He is the end of the law. He is not a blend of the law. Look at Romans 10.4. Christ, I mean, He is the end of the law for righteousness. He is the End of the law for righteousness. Again, if Christ is the end of the law, then why would God send something, end something, just to start it right back up again? Again, if you believe that, confusion by mixture. Now, to better understand, we must also realize there are two covenants mentioned. Two covenants mentioned. Old covenant, new covenant. Again, God did not introduce a mixture or blend of the two covenants. He replaced one with the other. Again, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need or, or, or search for a second covenant to replace it. Okay, let's go to number seven. Believers are not, the reason you can't mix it, believers are not led by the law if they are declared dead to the law friend, did you know that the Bible declares you dead to the law? Like mafia dead. You no longer exist. It's like you shouldn't have any association or relationship with it. As a matter of fact, to have a relationship with the law, the Bible says you have died to the law so that you may be married to another, according to Romans 7. Don't commit spiritual adultery on Jesus by going back to the law. That's how offensive that would be. Just think about that. That's Romans 7 for you. All right. So you are dead to the old wife, the law. You've been married to a much An upgrade, okay? Jesus is a a greater upgrade. Remember, uh, Hagar is a subordinate. Sarah is the leader. Law is a servant to grace. Remember it. So in this case, Romans 7, 4 says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. We don't become dead to the law by, you know, living after it. And, it, and completing it and achieving it. No, we become dead to the law only in one way, through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. There it is, see, to him who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. How do we bear fruit to God? By getting rid of the law. Whoa, I see here with thought I want to bear fruit. I want to live a fruitful life by living after the law. No, you bear fruit unto death when you do that. Look what it says. For when we were in the flesh, that is human effort, capacity, the sinful passions, which were aroused by this law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to, Death, when you try to live after the law, you bear the opposite of what you want to bear. You bear fruit to death. And that's why Paul said, the good I want to do, I do not do. The bad I don't want to do, I keep on doing. You will bear fruit unto death when you go after the law. But if you get rid of the law and you embrace faith and grace and Jesus only, what happens is you'll begin to bear fruit to God. Now, we'll go to this verse six. It says, but now we've been delivered from the law. There it is again. Having died to what we were once held by. Friend, we do not seek to be led by the law when we are emphatically declared dead to this law. Therefore, it says, having died to what we were held by, so that we would serve in the newness of the Spirit. That we would serve in the newness of the Spirit, not sin like a licentious liver, (laughs) like sinner, okay? It says, that we would serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And not in the oldness of the letter. Again, so clear. We are living under grace and not of the oldness of the letter. Forgive me, I'm really trying to emphasize the, the, the points. You see, uh, work with me here. So your relationship to the law is over. Again, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So if you're at the end of the law, then, and I don't know how because maybe you feel like, well, man, if I let go of the law, what's going to be my moral compass? How will I know what to do? How will I know how to live morally, holy, and righteously before God? Friend, Jesus, how, what will be your moral compass? Jesus will. How do you know how to live holy? Je- no, think about this. Roman, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31 says this. Christ is our holiness, our redemption, and our righteousness. Christ is our holiness, redemption, and righteousness. In other words, on account of Jesus, you are holy, righteous, and... And redeemed. Friend, holiness, righteousness, and redemption are not works or deeds in which you perform. They're a person you have living on the inside of you. You are righteous apart from your righteous deeds, friend. You are righteous in the eyes of God. And therefore, friend, I need you to understand this, that you then therefore are, are oh, my question is simply this, who is leading you? The law still or the Lord You know, Galatians 5.18 says we're to be led by the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Because the Spirit comes as a result of faith in Christ. The law is pre-faith. And so the Spirit and the law have nothing in common. And so, get this. We're not led by the Spirit. if If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. My question is this. Who is leading you then? Are you still being led by the law? Or are you being led by the Lord? Are you looking still to a system when you've got the Savior himself leading you and and loving you and guiding you into all truth, teaching you everything you'll need to know? Man. See, and many of you think, but I see that I've just struggled because what will be my moral compass? What will be these things? And I just, I want to live for God, you know? And yet look at this. Okay, so how do you live for God? Is living for God, living a moral life, a holy life after the Ten Commandments? Is that how we... We've measured what it is to live for God. Well, look what Galatians 2.19 says. Look what Paul, how he defines living for God. For when I tried to keep the law, law-abiding citizen here, it condemned me. Okay, so the law condemns. We've already said that. When you try to live after the law, it curses you. Galatians 3.10, we've already established that. So look what Paul says. So I died to the law. There it is again. Dead. Not led. Dead. Not, I, I'm dead to the law. I'm not led by the law. Okay. I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. See it? So that I might live for God. There it is, folks. If you want to live for God, how do you do it? He, you become dead to the law so that you may live for him. Hey, so don't fear any longer. Embracing God is how, you, is how you please him, how you live for him, and how you do the works of God. Friend, God is on your side. Number eight. The moment you look to the law to be justified is the moment the grace of God becomes nullified. See, you will nullify the grace of God when you mix grace with law. You'll render the grace of God inoperative and no longer in effect. As a matter of fact, Galatians 5, four says it very, very emphatically. Christ will become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you look to be justified through the law. Did you know that those who try to get right with God by keeping the law and living after observing the law, actually, it says... Christ becomes of no effect. You've been cut off from him, it says, and you've fallen from grace. You have fallen from grace, Galatians 5, 4. Notice, if you're to fall from grace by returning to the law, that means that grace is higher than the law, number one. Secondly, if you're to fall from grace, on a kind of return to the law, notice it's not by sinning. Many people have heard say, well, yeah, brother, so-and-so, he fell from grace. And they reference a behavioral thing he did, like some kind of sinful action he committed that caused him to, f- to fall from grace. No, friend, worse, the Bible says emphatically that, the, well, let me just put it this way. Grace, the only con- context in which it's applied and appropriate is in the context of sin. Think about it. Why would I need grace if I didn't sin? So you don't fall from grace by sinning. No, the Bible says in Romans five twenty that the law increases, so that sin might increase, and where there sin there was sin, grace superabounded. Therefore, we don't fall from grace by sinning. The Bible makes it radically clear we fall from grace by returning to the law. Because in order to look to the law in any way, looking to be justified, when you look to the law to be justified, the grace of God has become nullified. Help me understand. Help me. Let me help you understand what I'm saying. When grace brings is to bring life, but the law kills and brings death, those are two opposite functions. When you try to mix them together, what they do is they neutralize the effects of each. When grace tries to bring life, the law brings death and neutralizes it. And the function of each is canceled out by one another. So when you try to live by grace and law, it's like going to the mall and trying to put one es- foot on an escalator going up the mall, upstairs, and on another foot, if this were possible, on an escalator going down grace, the escalator going up, right? Law, the escalator going down. If you try to put one foot on each, you could for a moment make it happen until you get to the point where you're feeling like you're being torn apart because you're going to get to the point where you got to be stretchy. You know what I mean? You got to be able to stretch that. And what's going to happen for you to remain one foot on each, you're going to have to say to the, the operator of the escalator, please hit the kill switch quick before this thing tears me apart. Because here's the problem. One's going up and one's going down. And the only way you can keep a foot in each up and down escalator is to kill the function of each, to neutralize the effect of each. Come on, somebody. Maybe this is why Christ said, you know, this idea of putting old wine, uh, new wine into an old wineskin, Mark 22. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin or the new wine's Uh, or or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. Now, why does it burst the wineskins? Because an old wineskin has already fermented and the gases uh, in the fermentation process of that old wine fermented and the old wineskin dried out. It's hard, rigid, and and inflexible. Sounds a lot like the law, right? Hard, rigid, and inflexible. And so if you were to take new wine and put it in there, once the fermentation process begins and the gases begin to expand, it would cause it would burst this hard, rigid wineskin, and you'd lose both. So this is what Jesus is saying. You don't put new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine is going to burst the old wineskin itself. The wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined, and but new wine must be put, and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. What is Jesus proposing? What is he teaching? He's preaching and teaching about law and grace. You don't put the new wine of the new covenant into an old wineskin, old covenant mixture. He's like, you will lose, you will cancel, you will null and neutralize the effect of both. You will lose what they're both functional to do. And so he instructs us not to do that. And and the reality is I would instruct you not to do that because you will really do some damage in your life. Now, I can't understand why many believers are trying to balance this out. You know, I think that, you know, men often say to me, well, you just got to be careful. You got to balance this stuff out. No, you don't need to balance anything. What man calls balance, I believe that God calls mixture. And, you know, I just wish that, you know, if you're for the law, that you just be completely for the law, understanding its function, its purpose, and its place. But then, I, and if you're for grace, I just wish you were fully for grace. But this mixture, man, I believe that God hates it. As a matter of fact, I believe He it disgusts Him. He wants to spew it out of His mouth. Look at Revelation chapter three, verses fifteen to sixteen. He says, "I know your actions that you're in the church of Laodicea, the end-time church." He says, "I know your actions. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot, but since you are lukewarm, in the middle." And neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. i become wealthy. I don't need anything. You don't realize that you're miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I advise you to buy from, gold, from me gold purified in fire so that you may be rich. White clothes to wear, your, uh, to wear so your shameful nakedness won't show. An ointment to put on your eyes that you may see. I correct and discipline those I love. So I'll be serious and repent. Look, I'm standing at the door and knocking, which means Christ isn't amongst them. He's on the outside, which means they're clearly rich on account of themselves, and wealthy on account of themselves. They look very self-righteous, and so they've been cut off from Christ because they've turned to a point of works. See, for years I heard—just hear me this—for years I heard preachers teach in Revelations 3, verses 15 to 16, and refer to being hot for God as like, engaged fully active in service to god praying and speaking in tongues for hours and reading your bible evangelizing the world and building the church and giving lots of money and just being but cold was indifferent apathetic and lethargic to the things of god not really caring much about anything and living a life that wasn't reflective of the god that you serve and so here's the problem if that scripture is interpreted in sense of you know being active for jesus and working hard for god and not working but god says that lukewarm is discussing, he's going to spit you out. He wishes you either hot or cold. Well, think about this in the context of that interpretation. If that's really what this is speaking about, then I'm sorry, but lukewarm is better than cold. Is that in fact it's, it's progressing and in so many ways. It's ahead of cold because it's on its way to hot. It's got at least some hot in it. And so therefore, you have to, you'd have to agree with me that, hey, listen, why would Jesus spit you out if it's in terms of works, uh, on account of you know having a little bit of works in you, but you know rather than none? No, a little bit is better than none. And so this is my problem with that interpretation. I believe the true interpretation, a better interpretation, is understanding that in, in the context of law and grace. Do you want to know what Roman Revelations three verses fifteen to sixteen is really about? The two verses would make sense only when they're interpreted in the light of mixture of the law of covenants, uh, a mixture of, sorry, the covenants of law and grace in the church of Laodicea. The, The Lord was saying that he would, the church be cold, that is entirely under law or hot entirely under grace. You see, if you were at least completely under law, it would lead you to despair and into the saving arms of Jesus. The law would unveil to you your sinfulness and your inability to keep the full measure of it. And this would cause you to see your need for his grace. But when you have mixture, you see, where you believe in grace, but still hold on to a measure of the law, you neutralize the convicting power of the law to bring you to the end of yourself so that you would cry out for the grace of the Savior. That is why Christ said, I wish you were either cold or hot, but not both at the same time. Be for both. You can't be for both the law and grace at the same time. The moment you attempt to balance grace with the law, you neutralize both and the covenant is robbed of its full effect in your life. You become lukewarm because of the mixture. And God hates mixture because it robs you of the power to reign in life through the abundance of his grace. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins. You cannot be hot and cold at the same time. It's gross to the taste of God. He spits it out and he goes, this is not good. Don't mix law and grace. So friend, I hope you're seeing here today a succinct argument that we are not to mix the covenants. The reality is, We are to live by grace and by faith alone and trusting the leading of God's Spirit. We don't need a law to guide us. No, the truth is, the question to ask yourself is, who is guiding you, the law or the Lord? A a system or a Savior? The reality is, I pray that you would trust the Savior, the Spirit of God, to lead you and guide you into all truth and to teach you everything you might know, to show you all that is of Christ and make it known unto you. Look at John 11, the story of Lazarus. I think it's a great story to end on and we'll end here. I think it's a story that, you know, basically encapsulates, it captures the sentiments in which I'm trying to articulate here today, even with some of the objections that we see in the church today. It says that Lazarus was a great friend of Jesus and he passed. Jesus was told he was sick and he says, hey, he will not die. It will not result in death, even though he died. He says, but Jesus came back as a, the resurrection of life and resurrected him from the dead. Now, I want to show you this story because they told Jesus, Lord, come and see. And so he was brought to the tomb of Lazarus, showing up obviously at this point after the funeral had already you know, taken place. And Jesus, seeing the tomb and seeing everybody weeping, it says Jesus wept. And the people who were standing nearby said, man, see how much he loved him." But some said, man, love, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived to the tomb. A cave with a stone, a stone rolled across its entrance. Hey, he came to a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. And Jesus, verse 39 says, I want you to roll away the stone. Roll the stone aside. Friend, remember 2 Corinthians chapter 7 now. Let's do some like, you know, there's there's meaning in the objects here. I believe there's a, a teaching in this. Look, written, the, the ministry of death, the law, was written and engraved on stones. The stone, Jesus said, if you want to experience the resurrection life, you want to see Lazarus come forth, you have to roll away the stone. Jesus told them, but look what, what modern day people will say. They'll respond much like Martha. You can't take care of the law. I mean, the, the fleshly desires of our human nature are going to come forth, and the sinful, sin's going to run rampant. It's going to be, smell just like sin up in the camp, you know, and Look how Martha says, roll away the stone. says, Jesus, didn't I, Lord, he's been dead four days. The smell of flesh will be terrible. The smell will be terrible. Come on, somebody. Isn't that our fear? When we roll away the law, what will come forth is sin and sinfulness and the smell of sinful flesh, right? But Jesus responded and said, Martha, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe, faith. So, verse 41, they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it aloud for the sake of those who are standing here, so that they will have, you know, that they will believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Lazarus is a word that's actually derived, derived from an old Hebrew name named Eleazar. And Eliezer, if you didn't know, was actually the servant of Abraham, who was accounted and and counted as righteous on account of his faith. And Abraham gave birth to a promised son, like we discovered in this sermon, who is the promised son named Isaac. And when Isaac came about time to find a wife, aka when the Lord came about time to find a wife, the church... God sent forth the Holy Spirit, the help of God. Eleazar means the help of God into the world to go find him a wife. Come on, somebody. And so Abraham sent Eleazar, the help of God, into uh, you know, his home country to go find him a wife. And he came back and gave a, Isaac a, a wife. Now, look at this out Lazarus means help of God. Notice this. Who comes forth in the resurrection life? Jesus rolls away the stone. When we roll away the law, Jesus calls forth then, hey, by faith, the Holy Spirit, the help of God, who brings resurrection life to our bodies and we experience new life. And now he sanctifies us by renewing the grave clothes and helping to live in the freedom which Christ died to set us free. Friend, I hope you hear it. We need to roll away the stone, embrace the grace, and invite the help of God, the Spirit of God, to now come and take His rightful place where Christ, on account of removing the law, is not just removing it so you live in like no man's said no, but now releasing the dispensation, a dispensation of, of God's Spirit now into the earth where He now leads, lives, leads, and guides us into all truth, showing us all that is of Christ and making it known to us and teaching us everything that we'll need to know. Friend, would you trust God? and the spirit by faith here today and release yourself from the fear of letting go of the law and embrace the life that Jesus died to give you. Come on, somebody, roll away the stone. Embrace the grace and embrace the abundant life that Jesus died to bring to you and I. Love you guys. We'll see you soon.